Welcome to the NHRA Insider Podcast with Brian Loans. A huge explosion of fire for John Forrest. The car exploded going through the lights, and this is as bad a fire as we On this episode, we're talking Houston on this race week with Tony Pedregon, the NHRA on Fox analyst. It's going to be Tim Wilkerson. Wilkerson goes 391-2. There's a huge weekend of racing and beautiful weather on tap down in Baytown, Texas. Perfect reaction time for Dallas Glenn. Triple zeros across the top of the time slip. And at the finish line stripe, it's Dallas Glenn. This is the NHRA Insider. It's Cruz Pedragon, 395.8, 324 miles an hour. A margin of victory of 26 ten thousandths of a second. Hey, everybody, it's Brian Loans back again, this time finally for a race week episode of the NHRA Insider Podcast. And as it is a race week, everybody's doing their thing out there. The teams are preparing. Trucks are rolling. Got to catch up with Tony Pedragon to get his kind of thoughts as to who's uh, who's needing to step on it, who's coming in with momentum, and what this uh, almost quarter pole of the season looks like, believe it or not. It'll be the fifth race of a 22-race campaign over the course of this 2022 Camping World Drag Racing season. So we really are starting to see you know, kind of where people will stand and how they will stand. Uh, this could be a watershed weekend for a team like Brittany Forces. Can they go back-to-back? Can we continue to see her performance behind the wheel, um, kind of matching David Grubnick's performance behind the wrenches with the rest of that team. Obviously, it all came together in fine fashion for them in Vegas, and Houston is a place that has been friendly to Brittany Forrest in the past. And, you know, Houston's a track with such incredible history. Of course, uh, it is the bittersweet moment of what we are expecting to be the final running of the NHRA Spring Nationals in Baytown, Texas. Now, That doesn't mean the end of the NHRA Spring Nationals as an event, which is, I think, something that confuses people. Um, The the NHRA has... obviously is is looking at and has been looking at and is having uh, serious conversations with a bunch of different racetracks around the country. There will be, uh, for the 2023 season, I think you're going to see at least one or two places that either we haven't been in a long time or places that uh, we have not been before on the national event scale. So it's going to be all kinds of stuff going on in the future. I think, uh, obviously, the the um, you know overriding hope of those of us that are fans, you, me, and everybody else that loves drag racing, is hoping that, one, uh, this track remains open for a year. We know that they're actually going to do some racing in 23. I don't know if we're going to be part of it, but there will be some racing going on in Baytown. And there's also the outside hope that uh, Circuit of the Americas uh, will add a drag strip or add the drag strip that they actually had laid out in the original site plan of that place. The place where the drag strip would go is as yet undeveloped. And uh, my understanding, and this wholly comes through Alexis DeJoria in various interviews and conversations I've had with her, is that uh, when they went to build Circuit of the Americas, they, they had conversations with NHRA and they said, hey, uh, what's the deal with the drag strip? What if what if we what what do we need to have specificity wise? Uh, how do we spec this thing out? What do we need for land, length, seating, all that stuff? And what it came down to is the fact that there are already two events in Texas and Austin and Houston are not far apart. And NHRA basically said, hey, uh, and actually, I don't know if it was a mutual agreement. I don't think NHRA told them not to do it. Obviously, they would have they would have done it if they wanted to. But uh, the overriding logic at the time was, okay, in the event that one of these other tracks is no longer part of the NHRA tour, uh, maybe it's time at that point to add the drag strip. Well, 
as we now understand that uh, Houston Raceway Park will be closing uh, to what degree at the end of the season we are kind of unsure about. Uh, maybe this is the time that the, the Circuit of the Americas uh, course can add their drag strip. It would be huge. Uh, it would be massive. Um, obviously, that place is uh, iconic, globally known. Uh, the MotoGP series was just there. I mean, they race Formula One cars there, stock cars there. Um, effectively, every premier form of motorsports on Earth competes at the Circuit of the Americas, except for drag racing, because there is no drag strip. That could be remedied, and all of our fingers are, are crossed, and hopefully those um, those hopes are realized, and it would be a great addition to the sport to have such a prestigious venue as uh, Coda to add a drag strip, but that's kind of down the road, and we need, really need to focus on what's going to be happening this weekend, and the energy and vibe that will be going on uh, at Houston Raceway Park will be... Uh, to a degree, maybe something I, I don't know if I've ever experienced at a drag race yet. I've never um, in my my lifetime of, of being in this sport for, I guess, half my life now, about 20 years. Um, I've never come into a race a week before the event. Uh, I'm not saying the week of the event. I mean like a week, if not multiple weeks before the event and being told, hey, listen, uh, we are pretty much already convinced that this thing's going to be like a three-day sellout. And, you know, contingency plans being made on phone calls about how early you're going to need to get to the facility and, and, and what's going to happen and how the logistics are going to work and, and every other type of thing. So uh, this is going to be as much a, um, a farewell gathering uh, as a drag race. It is going to be a party. It is going to be wild. And, you know, we have seen um, events like the last race we had in Atlanta, which was, you know, bonkers, crazy, you know, packed house. Um, the seating capacity of Houston is, is multiple times what that of Atlanta was. And the forecast, which we're going to talk about to Tony Pedregon about when we get him on here in a few minutes. But as long as I've been going to uh, Baytown, Texas, which now is about 10 years, uh, this is the most beautiful looking forecast we've ever had, at least in my estimation. Uh, we have finished several races in Baytown on Monday. Uh, normally, we spend some time dodging raindrops on a good weekend, intermittently on a rough weekend uh, for days. But uh, that is not looking like the case. Uh, it is looking as though it's going to be temperate. It is looking as though uh, the sun will be shining the entire weekend. And it's looking like we're going to get delivered the type of weather that will match this this kind of atmosphere at the racetrack. Um, we know the stories about Erica. We know, you know, this is a place where so many people got their first win. Cruz got his first win in, in Houston in 92. Uh, and that incredible season when he wins the Funny Car Championship as a rookie. Uh, Robert Hike got his first win here. Of course, Erica Anders won her first national event here in Supergas, and the list goes on and on. It is a place that has constantly churned out great performances. It has constantly churned out great memories. It is a place where careers have ended. As we know, uh, Eddie Hill suffered just a, just an incredibly violent, uh, one of the most violent uh, engine failures, really, I think, in drag racing history. And it um, it ended his top fuel career. And we did a Nitro Time Machine about it. And, you know, when you watch the video of the engine block uh, breaking in half, you know, for those of you that don't know the story, Eddie was sold a pair of, of engine blocks that failed in succession to one another that were internally flawed and were never supposed to be sold in the first place. Uh, he got some stuff there that, that it was not them... Uh, beating on their equipment it was it was bad parts that should have never been sold they were sold to him by uh, you know a bad actor so to speak and and that put him in a bind and, and ultimately finished off his top fuel career but 
Um, all the things that have happened over the years in, in Ennis, and we're going to talk about that on our TV show. If you've been following along, NHRA.com, Phil Burgess has a great series, kind of a top 10 you know, biggest moments from Ennis, Texas, or rather from Baytown, Texas. Ennis is where the Motorplex is, of course. And it's been a great series, and one of those per day has been dropping. So if you really want to get kind of steeped in the history of, uh, of HRP, that is the way to do it. And again, do I believe this is the last one? I do. Uh, do I hope against hope that there's one more next year that the racetrack decides to um, to have us back next year? Yes, I do. Uh, do I also hope that on the horizon there will be um, an additional drag strip built in Texas? Oh, yes, I hope that as well. And finally, do I know something about this in terms of um, what the plan is going forward? I don't know the where of the plan, but I do know that the eyeballs are up. And uh, there's a lot of tracks across this country that have reached out proactively and said, hey, what do we need to do to get ourselves up to standard? What do we need to do to host an event? And that's going to be really neat to watch uh, kind of unfold and find out uh, maybe some some fresh locations, some fresh faces. It's always great to go into two new places and and get ourselves into uh, into new cities and, and new areas. All that being said, uh, we look forward to a, a great weekend of drag racing in the great state of Texas. It is going to be fun to get down there. Finally, we get two races back to back. Of course, right on the backside of Houston, we go to Charlotte to go four wide racing for the second final time of 2022. And there'll be more to talk about that when we come out of this Houston race early next week. So rather than continue to ramble on, I've done that long enough. I'm going to get to our one and only guest on this episode. It's a conversation with Tony Pedragon talking about Houston, talking about what we should be expecting and talking about how he feels as though this event will set itself up and which teams uh, are coming in with the wind at their sails and which teams are coming in at the winds at their face. Without further ado, let's get into our conversation with Tony. Good morning, Brian. Uh, racing must be around the corner if we're talking. Yes, finally, man. It feels like we've been off for a year. It's it's weird. You get going, and all of a sudden, you have this three-week break in the middle, and, and it uh, kind of sucks the life out of you. So I'm excited to be going back to the racetrack this weekend, and uh, it's good. this this thing in Houston is going to be crazy. Obviously, it's bittersweet to be the last one, but it's shaping up to be just a, a monster of an event. Yeah, you know, I think the biggest reason, uh, you know, of course, it's the farewell, so a lot of people have a tendency to come out, but you know, if you look at the forecast, I mean, I think that really tells the story. And I think anytime, um, especially, you know, probably Maple Grove and, and Houston seem to, you know, have the most issues with the weather. But I think anytime you get a forecast like we're looking at right now, I, I think people just, you know, they can plan ahead and they know they're going to get a great experience. Yeah, I mean, this is probably the best forecast we've had at this race for years. I mean, it's, um, you know, normally, like you said, and we've, we've spent a lot of Mondays there over the years finishing this thing up, but it's going to be like, what, mid-70s and, and the chance of precipitation is, is basically at zero. So it doesn't really, for this for this particular event and racetrack, it doesn't get better than this. No, it's it's going to be good, and you know it's a little. I agree with you. It's a little bittersweet. Um, there's a lot of history there. I think when you think about English Town and Atlanta and some of the other tracks that you know we don't race at, uh, I look back at you know some of the races. Uh, the, one, the one in particular, the first race that I won in Atlanta, but there is no Atlanta anymore. So yeah. you know it takes a little bit of the shine off, and I. I think for a lot of racers, a lot of drivers, uh, crew chiefs, team owners, crew members that, you know, have had success there, they're going to look back at Houston, you know, and there was so much history because it's just a quick and fast racetrack. Um, you know, we're going to have high barometer and, you know, when you have the right conditions, it's it's just been so early in the year, you go to Gainesville, you break some records, and then, you go, then you go to Houston, you break them again. 
<laughs> yeah, and we do have the potential to, to see some really fast runs down there. And, and I mean, what we saw in Gainesville, especially out of the pro stock cars and bikes, will likely never be replicated, at least this season, unless we run into more freakish air. But uh, track records could certainly be blown to smithereens down here. One of the things I want to talk about to start with is, you know, this is Erica Ender's home racetrack. Uh, you know, famously, she started her career in junior dragsters at this place. She really grew up here. And I'm still kind of I'm still kind of stuck on what she did in Vegas because I don't know if I've ever actually seen anybody pull it off where they they stand up the morning of the race and raise their hand and say to the whole world on social media, say, I will be holding a Wally this afternoon and then actually do it. That was the impressive part. You know, Brian, I wish more I wish more drivers would do that. Yeah, I, I think if they have it. It's in their nature. I think a lot of them just get a little conservative. I I thought it was great that Erica did it because it kind of shifted the focus. I mean, uh, Greg's running better, and you know, of course, Stanfield. He's been, you know, he's been pretty, uh, he's been pretty good and quick and fast and doing everything right. And you know, Koreski, you've got all these, you know, drivers. Dallas Glenn, you know, what he's been doing, and of course, Chris, uh, Christian Quadra. Um, it's pretty amazing what they're able to do on the starting line. But you know, I, I think that. Um, we just wish there would be more of it. And, you know, Muldowney used to do that. Shirley would call the race. She'd race Scarlet's even when Garlitz was running good. And she would just flat out say, you know, I'm, I'm going to beat him. I'm going to whip him. And, and when she did, I think that was part of her, you know, what made her so popular. I mean, she had a great personality uh, anyway, but um, because she wasn't, she wasn't canned. It wasn't rehearsed. She would just say what she felt. And, and, you know, we've talked about this before. I think that, our viewers especially because that's you know that's what this is all about that's what tv is all about is attracting um you know more more viewers they they just want to see the, the genuine article they want to see some authenticity and um you know i think when you call it when you call a home run you point at that you know third baseline and you hit it there you're you're a hero yeah it, it was really cool i mean and uh and now she comes into this race with with you know all the motivation in the world because of this being the home racetrack and everything else uh and there's a double down on this too which is you know we go to the other side of this equation and, and greg anderson is really uh to his own standard and maybe to our expectation has underperformed so far this year and, and i don't know if it's him underperforming or or others overperforming the aaron stanfields of the world they may be they may be making his situation look worse than it actually is, but I know he's disappointed with how things have gone so far, and he needs to kind of get it turned around pretty quick. Yeah, and I think that's the problem, Brian. And I I know I think Greg acknowledges that. Um, I think he realizes. You know, I listened to your podcast and and Jim Yates. You know, and a few of the things that he said were pretty interesting. And he said it himself. I mean, he's an experienced driver, and even when these guys were in their prime, I, I just think you're seeing a different level of drivers with these young guys you know when jim yates was driving and you know for greg you'd have to as good as he has been um and there haven't been many that have been better than greg you're talking about youth and and there's um you know there's a certain uh, mentality and and fearlessness and ability that comes that comes along with it you know so when you look at your stanfields and your you know dallas glenn and kyle and, and mason McGahey. I don't. I don't know that the class has ever seen, you know, this this influx of drivers. Uh, you know, when you when you go back to, you know, even Warren Johnson, maybe Kurt Johnson, but you know, for the most part, if you total up the overall age of of the, the greatest pro stock eras, I, I think I think we've shaved a lot of years off of that. And I I think for that reason, 
you know, guy like Greg, some of the older drivers, um, it's it's just tougher for him. I mean, he's had a pretty good car, and I think that's where his frustration comes from. Is he's got to do something that he hasn't had to do in the past, and uh, you know, he's always risen to the occasion. But you know, now you've got to you've got to find something different, and uh, I think it's there. But you know, then when you find it, you have to do it on a on a consistent basis, and that's. You know, that's there lies the challenge for Greg. Yeah, and, and look, he's averaging a thirty nine light, which is not bad. Obviously, we look at an O thirty nine average reaction time, which is like, damn, that's pretty awesome. But then you think, uh oh, Dallas Glenn's averaging thirty two, Fernando Jr. averaging nineteen, uh uh McGahey averaging twenty one. You know, all of a sudden that thirty nine starts to look like, Oh man, I'm actually spotting people a hun or a hun and a half. And we know in that in that class you can't you, you can't do that at all. I mean Erica's thirty four. We can get on the list. His thirty nine again is a great average reaction time, which I think most people would kill for over the course of a season. But right now in this category, it means you're giving up probably half a car length when the race starts. It's it's nuts. Yeah, and that's a fact. I mean if you look at the pro stop final, I you know, Dallas Glenn had a 25. Um, you know, Erica had a 19, and she was she was losing the race up to a thousand feet. Yeah. Uh, you know, and there was a couple of drivers, uh, even Kyle Koretsky in the semifinals. Um, you know, he he you, you could anyone would argue that he could have easily been in the final, and he had a good reaction time. It just wasn't wasn't good enough. So I think that's going to be the story of Pro Stock most of the year. So let's look at top fuel this weekend because it is, to me, really interesting. we got 18 cars on the qualifying sheet, which is always good. means we've got a bump spot to talk about. Um, you know, the two the two names that tend to jump out at me as far as the bump spot, we got Mitch King and, and Cameron Foray here this weekend. And it sounds like I'm picking on these guys, but I'm not. It's just they're uh, – Foray's going to be driving Terry Haddock's car, and Mitch King will be driving his own uh, his own top fuel car, which sees the light of day a few times a year. They don't run it very frequently, but it's a decent car, and they're going to have to stand on the gas here to get in this field, especially with the conditions we see, but to me, what's really exciting is I look at this list of 18, and I don't know who's going to land where, and if you miss the first one and you miss the second one, there are going to be some good cars really trying to figure it out in Q3, so I think it's going to make for a fun Sunday ladder. Yeah, and that's the beauty of having some additional cars. You know, if one of the one of the bigger teams or the cars that we expect to qualify, if they miss, and that can easily happen, happen because we're going from you know elevation to sea level, they have to change their combination. They're very familiar with the conditions, overall conditions in Houston, but it happens, and they're going back to three runs, and uh, I think that helps create a little bit of drama, and that's always great for us, especially that last qualifying show when we see you know some cars that that aren't in it just puts more pressure on them and you know teams function they perform different when they have pressure on them so i i think it's um you know when we have 17 18 cars and beyond it's always better than just you know 16 cars it's just no pressure everybody's guaranteed to get in and you know it, it it has an upside i mean some of these guys they press and if they if it works they run really good uh but those are usually the guys that we expect to run good so you know, how important is this race for, for Mike Salinas? Because really, this Vegas was the first time we saw him make a very obvious mental mistake on the starting line in a very long time. And so for to have to sit on that for three weeks, how important is it for this guy to get out there and make sure his head's right and kind of come out swinging? Because to me, it seems like one of those moments where, you know, is this, is, is this where the other shoe drops? Is this where things revert back to where they were? Or can he overcome it? I think he can overcome it. I, I think it's easy to write off for a driver because it's a four wide. 
um, and he knows that things were different. He knows the you know the challenge looking over a light. And he was in the he was in the preferred lane. Yeah, he was. You know, there really wasn't anything that worked against him. It was just the fact that, you know, there were. It was probably the drivers that he was competing with more than anything. Um, you know, the fact that uh, I think it was Tony Schumacher and and Antron. If yes, my memory, it was. Yep. Right? Yeah, I mean, if I'm racing those guys, I mean, he the drivers have a tendency to you know concern themselves as he should have been. Um, you know, maybe less with Tony because his at the time his car wasn't running that well it for sure as heck woke up in the semifinals but i think that was the bigger problem i i think um you know again i think the challenge for mike is going to be if the car can continue to run the way that it has i think he can fix it as a driver but um he seemed he seems to be pretty solid you know i i think i think there's still a category of drivers that are are elite i think that they're yeah. a little bit better than the rest of the field and then I, I see a second category and, and um, you know, drivers like, like even Brittany, um, you know, she stepped up and she improved. And that's really the only thing that that team has lacked. But if she can stay in that range, you're going to win some races. Oh, listen, and I was going to bring that topic up next, so I'm glad you mentioned it. But, you know, she was 61, 56, and 65 uh, over the course of eliminations on Sunday on the starting line. To me, just what you said – if she can find that spot and stay even remotely close to that, this becomes the scariest top fuel car in the country immediately. Yeah, and, and she was good, um, not great. Uh, she, that she could have been beat. I mean, and the reason they won is I think that Steve's car didn't run as good as they expected it to. I mean, they only ran three twenty six. Yeah. Um, compared to i mean britney's car ran three a 12 12 mile an hour faster in yeah. the final and i think that's really what made the difference so um it's still impressive i mean the fact that she was 65 i mean that would allow her to compete i mean there were two drivers that were quicker than her and you know i think the outcome could have easily been different but i think that um i think for her for britney really the the takeaways from top fuel in vegas were what Brittany did and even what Leah did. I mean, Leah's car has been running good all year. And the fact that she was able to, you know, to shake to mentally um, overcome, you know, the, the first three races. I mean, it, it, when I looked at the numbers and when we, we talked about, and we even showed the graphic of how she has been in qualifying versus on, on Sunday. And, and that's just pressure. That's just a mental, a mental thing. And, you can you can shake some rocks and look up at the moon and put a you can do whatever you want and consult with anyone <laughs> but but you find it you really a driver yeah. finds it within themselves and it's just it's something that everybody has to sort through in their own way but when it's all said and done if you want to compete in top fuel funny car in any of these professional categories the quality of racing has become um so much better that you're either going to live or die on that starting line, yeah. and, and it's good to see that that uh, they've that she's made that uh, those improvements because you know now there's now there's thirty cars in top field that that can win. It's just you know it's amazing that there hasn't been a repeat winner, there hasn't been a repeat finalist in top field. So 
it's uh it's it's pretty crazy it is crazy and one last top fuel question uh my understanding was and a lot of teams stayed and tested on monday after the vegas race my understanding was the capco guys stayed and tested and they stayed and tested kind of a um let's call it a grubnik-esque style setup where um it's a it's a different balance between compression and blower overdrive than they were used to running um did you hear anything from that and did you hear the same thing i did and did you hear any results from it no, that's no surprise. Uh, I think a lot of these teams have been chasing what what Grubnik has been doing, and you know we can go back a couple of years. I, I don't think it's a big secret that Grubnik runs a slightly different combination. Um, you know, we know from the you know the Clay Milliken you know departure that you know whether it's camshaft fuel system, but all of these things work in tandem. You know, it it you can't you're not going to get the camshaft or or the combination that that david grubnick runs and plug it into to a car and have the same success um you know everything has to work in in tandem with the engine the power level uh in relation to the clutch and how they apply it and only a guy like like grubnick um you know can figure out that specific combination but there are different scenarios there are different ways of making power and um you know everybody wants it early and there are you know if, if you want in the walk in the pits and this has always been something that's that's been fascinating to me is you can see two cars go down the racetrack and run a 370 at 330 miles an hour and we've pointed out if, if it's in the evening at dusk we can see the header flame we see a set of orange header flames that you know are, are a little more dense maybe have a little more body and then we see the light, the lighter colored, the leaner um, header flames. So that tells us that these tuners are taking a completely different ap- approach. One is burning more fuel, is putting a different load on the engine, and the other may be running, you know, more more blower, shoving more air and more and less compression. So um, when it's all said and done, I think that I think that even for Torrance, he hasn't won a race. I think he's going to be there either on the top or close second. Uh, but I think that when they find when they find a little more power, like we're only talking two or three hundreds, but yeah. that's a real, real hard two or three hundreds to find on a consistent basis. Um, and then being able to do that when it starts to heat up, when it starts to warm up, we're going to see temperatures maybe in the mid to low 80s. And especially in the summer, I mean, regardless of the track prep, you're going to have to be able to run hard early. When some of these tracks start to heat up, um, usually the starting line is good. You can you can apply a little more power there. It becomes marginal from 150, 200 feet and beyond. So, you know, the, the trick is to find the power. And I, I think there were a lot of teams that stayed over and tested on Monday after Vegas. And it'll be interesting to see if we can see any difference. Yeah, and it should be noted that Torrance is the points leader right now. <laughs> so as much as it yeah. is, it, you know, it continues to crack me up because I do the same thing where it's like, man, I wonder what. Oh, they're actually winning. They're leading the points. Okay, cool. <laughs> um, let's transition to Nitro Funny Car because I think there's a couple of really interesting storylines here. Uh, of course, Ron Caps kind of reinserting himself into the conversation. You know, we look at the the top three cars in Nitro Funny Car. They're separated by forty points from one to three. The number four car, which is Cruz Pedragon, is 140 points back. So this is a this is a pack in and unto themselves. And I'm talking, of course, about Caps, Height, and Hagen. I, I always hate to say I told you, Brian, but I told you those are the three <laughs> cars right there. 
And, you know, I, I think um, it, they're not going anywhere. You know, Ron is – it's the same car on the track. You know, nothing has really changed. Uh, I know that, you know, he's paying the bills. He's writing the checks. But outside of that, you know, it's he's still living at home. You know, his parents said, hey, you're on your own, but you can stay in the house and just have to pay rent. So it's, it's, there's no surprise there. And, and uh, you know, the fact that Matt Hagen is, you know, is still – as good as they have been, uh, you know, turnkey operations, same, uh, you know, same personnel, same talent, same driver, same everything. And, um, you know, Robert, I think, you know, it's no surprise. I, I think with Robert, it was a bigger surprise that they haven't, they hadn't been running good, um, you know, and, and, and just seeing their kind of performance back is, is where we expect them to be. So, um, I know that, you know, I I think Force's problem is very apparent. The car runs, it had the performances there, but they've just got to find some consistency. You know, a driver like John, you can't do what a driver has to do if the car isn't consistent. Yeah. So, you know, that's they have to find that. You know, Tasca, that's not the case with him. They just need a little performance. And there's another team that stayed over and, and tested and tried some different things. And yielded some pretty good results you know but the true test is going to be let's see if they run that well in qualifying right out of the gate so um you know and then Cruz, i think Cruz has had the performance and uh, they need to maybe find a little bit of consistency but there's another team that they're looking at those top three and saying look we, we don't we don't want to be a step or two behind these guys right. so uh, i think it's there with a lot of cars where's gr todd i i just think that some of them are going to surface um sooner than later yeah i mean the dhl thing is is to me um you know when we look at at kind of who's where they want to be and who's where they don't want to be so far in the year i mean those guys cannot be satisfied with what's going on with that thing and and as you said i mean you look at you know we say this but sometimes it doesn't happen you look at who's on the car you look at the skill level you look at everybody involved a championship level team a couple of years ago we expect it to happen like you know one week that's going to show up and they'll win a race but the reality is We've expected that to happen for a lot of guys over the last couple of years, and it just hasn't come true. So, you know, I, I'm always interested to see kind of when that pressure level ratchets up. And I know they put a lot of pressure on themselves, but at this point, we're we're going to be about about 25 percent done with the season, give or take. Um, and uh, and so at some point, this idea of well, it's a long year, we'll get it. it, it the year's getting short in a hurry. Yeah, and I you know I, I agree with you. I think that. Um they're on first base and now they've they've the teams that haven't performed they've got to and i think they realize that you know it really it goes by pretty quick and and uh you know i know it's there's a countdown a lot of them are are going to be glad that there is going to be a reset but um i think that that the crucial time the critical time and we're going to see a turning point with some of these teams um you know like salinas it's just it's going to be interesting to see if if they are able to continue, you know, that kind of performance. And the other question is, well, when is Doug Coletta going to get it together? I, I'm, not, I'm not the least bit concerned with that with that program. Uh, I think they've been on the losing end of a couple of close races. Um, I think, I mean, if you had, if you asked me, with the exception of of Steve Torrance, who wins the race, is I put money on on Doug Coletta. Yeah, and. Um, you know, Clay and, and Clay Milliken is the other guy. I, I think we saw Jim Oberhofer step in and I'm kind of curious if, if he changed much or, 
you know, if, if he had to go resort to what Mike Clover left, because most of these tuners are very organized and, you know, they leave everything in front of you that you need to set a car up for the next race. Um, it'll just be interesting to see if he puts his own signature on that setup or if he continues to run what Mike Clover was doing because it, it's, it runs, it performs, it's proven. And, you know, it's interesting because it's probably not far off of what David Grubnick was doing when he left that team. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, I think the other the other funny car story I want to talk about, which is a kind of an under-the-radar story, is Paul Lee's return. They took the Vegas race off, and he's kind of obviously the other side of this Jim Oberhofer story where we're going to see what uh, kind of the debut of Dustin Heim and, and Jason Bunker as the co-crew chiefs on this car. And I have to guess, you know, obviously everybody shows up to try to win the race. I get it. But I have to guess the definition of success for this weekend for this team is just going to be three clean qualifying runs, whether those are 4-0s or 390s, whatever they may be. I feel like three clean qualifying runs and these guys are going to be at least mildly satisfied because so far it has not been a year to, to remember for Paul Lee. No, I agree. I think, um, you know, I, I think we should expect a lot from that team and regardless of who's, who's tuning it, it can't be worse. If you could imagine that, I, I don't think it, it could because when, when the chemistry goes away and there's no compatibility and, you know, the crew doesn't like the tuner. And I'm not saying that any of that happened. Maybe with some other teams that might have been the case. But um, whatever was going wrong, it, you know, the fundamentals never really change. And, you know, for someone to go in there and take a look at, you know, what what Oberhofer was doing, I'd go back even farther to see what Ron Tobler was doing with that car. Because that car, when it was assembled, it was a carbon copy of the car that Ron Tobler ran. Um and I've heard, I think what'll be interesting will be to see if they show up with the five disc or six disc. Um, I, you know, personally, I think the five disc work just fine. It's just a, a matter of, you know, the application. It, it, one operates in a different temperature range and makes for a little smoother of a transition. But, but I understand you have to do things a lot different and unless they have somebody that's guiding them and they may they may well this is a john force combination um that they had with the tony gerardo car that um that he was tuning and you know i i, I don't uh it may take a little while but i think if you go back to the basics um and if you have a, a basic understanding of how how these cars operate in terms of how much compression uh, how much air you're trying to put into the engine and how much fuel you're going to try to deliver in every increment of the track and, you know, and have a basic clutch setup. The car should go down the track and be competitive. So I think that Paul Lee has good equipment and I think it'll, they'll be one to watch. I, I don't see them as a team that's going to go there and struggle. I agree. And, and you know, to, just to go back to your original point, when that car was put together, as you mentioned, uh, Tobler had a, you know, his hands directly on it. And it was at that time that, that Dustin was Tobler's second on Ron Capps' car. So um, I think it makes a lot of sense. And uh, I wish those guys uh, success. I obviously want to see them do well. And, and you want to see everybody kind of get themselves moving in the right direction. So that's going to be fun to watch as, as well. Uh, one last topic, of course, Pro Stock Motorcycle is back for the first time since Gainesville. Uh, we saw really an incredible weekend of pro stock motorcycle racing and uh, Karen Stover owned the show with the national record resetting multiple times in a row. 
One of the things that was missed, though, and not really missed, but it got swept under the rug because of what Stouffer did, was both Angel and Matt Smith going out in the first round to Lance Bonham and Mark Ingwersen. Um, And again, it's the first race of the year, so you can't judge a lot of stuff. But to me, uh, this is a class that continues to kind of deliver these upset moments. And if, if Karen Stouffer had not gone out there and blown the scoreboards over multiple times, we probably would have made a bigger deal out of that. And I agree. I, I thought it was a pretty big deal the way that it played out. You know, and and I think that the bikes, you know, they, they were they were affected just like everyone else. And you know, the the drivers or the riders like Matt Smith, um, you know, they they pretty much beat themselves. Uh, I don't think that's going to happen at Houston. I think that Karen will have uh, stiffer competition, but if she continues to run the way that she did, um, you know, and again, I'll go back to what Jim Yates said. I mean, a lot of a lot of them should have run as quick, and. And, uh, you know, I, I still think that Matt Smith is he'll get it together. But, you know, Karen, I mean, she was uh, I don't think she was as consistent as they could have been. And if they are able to find that this year, then she's going to be right up there um, with the uh, Vance and Hines bikes uh, with Angel. And who knows what Steve Johnson will do if he can find the magic again. But um I, I think that Karen is going to be Matt Smith's toughest competition this year. Yeah, and Matt's bringing the Suzuki out for the first time uh, in, in Texas, so he'll be on a four-valve uh, Suzuki bike. Um, he has not won on a Suzuki in his in his career, so that's something he wants to do. But he has said basically that whichever bike is what he feels is more competitive is the one he'll run at time to time. But it'll be neat to see him on the Suzuki and Ellie Tonglet's coming back. Um, Ellie's on a two-valve Suzuki, which – um, he believes that still can be competitive, and obviously this is a guy who is a world champion rider. So uh, to me, it's going to be interesting if, if anybody can make that two-valve combination uh, competitive and, and kind of hang with the pack. I think it is those guys, and to me, um, it, it could add another element, you know, because I think a lot of us have, have gone, okay, well, this four-valve thing has kind of taken over the Suzuki world, and nobody's running this two-valve stuff anymore. But if a good race team can make it work, it may uh, it may add another kind of you know a little bit of a dash of uh, something to the punch. You know what I mean? Well, if anyone can make it work, you know, other than the hands, the Heinz uh, team, you know, that combination has run in the seventies before. You can never forget about that. Yeah, uh, Ellie's got the talent. It'll be great to see him back uh, on a bike, and I got a feeling that he's he's confident because they've snuck off and done some testing, but. Uh, it'll it'll be good to see him mix it up, and it'll be good to see everybody rebound. You know, Angel and, and Eddie, and um, you know, even Savoy. I think that I think what we saw was was um, extraordinary in in Gainesville. I, I just I think we're going to see a lot more of it um, in that class. Yeah, it's going to be great. Well, man, I look forward to it this weekend. Finally, kind of back at it, and we go back to back, go four wide racing the following week down in Charlotte. So, we'll uh, the the long wait is over. Everybody's had plenty of time to service their equipment and get their stuff ready, and uh, it's going to be a it's going to be a blowout down there in Houston, man. It's going to be fun. Yeah, we'll look forward to it, Brian. And um, yeah, it'll be great to get back in action and start stacking some of these races up. I know from the driver's perspective, um, as a driver. You know they're they're going to find their groove and they're going to need it because uh, in all of the four pro classes, I think the quality of racing is good as it's ever been. And now is the time that you and I'm not just talking about a driver getting off the line. There's so many other things that come into it. You know, I took my son to uh, Radford about a, a little over a month ago, and I sat into the class in the classroom with them, and I realized how much goes into getting a driver onto the racetrack. 
um, in almost any other type of sport. And I, I don't know that that most of the drivers, I know a lot of them do, but, but some of the drivers that don't compete or can't compete on a regular basis, um, they really should prepare. They should train if it's coaching, whatever goes into getting them on the racetrack, they should do more. And it, it made me realize that just sitting and listening to, uh, you know, a coach, a driver coach, a driver trainer, somebody with experience. And, um, you know, so when we say what, what makes up a good driver, it's not just the driver's ability to get off the starting line. It's car control, it's throttle control, it's all these different things. And yes, it does happen in a short amount of time, but um, I think more than ever, the better drivers are the ones that are going to make the difference between winning and losing. And we'll see how it all plays out this weekend. And we will be live with our qualifying coverage, a rare two-hour live qualifying show on Friday evening. And then we have final qualifying coverage on FS1 on Sunday, along with the elimination show on Sunday evening, also on FS1. Tony and I will be on it. You should be watching it. Thanks, Tony. Appreciate it, man. See you there. And so that will bring this race week edition of the NHRA Insider Podcast to a close. Cannot wait to get down to Baytown, Texas for the fifth race of the NHRA Camping World Drag Racing Series in 2022. Of course, we also have the Lucas Oil Drag Racing Series being contested down there. Sportsman action wall to wall. It is going to be absolutely wild, absolutely crazy, and absolutely so much fun. Thanks for listening. We'll be back again next week to recap Houston and look forward to Charlotte Four Wide Action, but make sure you tune in Friday night, live qualifying coverage on FS1, final qualifying coverage coming on Sunday, also on FS1, and final round eliminations on Sunday evening shown on FS1. Check your local listings for times or go to NHRA.com and get all the broadcast times. Thanks to Tony Pedragon for coming on the show today. I'll be seeing him in Texas and I'll be seeing you to the backside of your TV set, smartphone, or whatever device you watch drag racing on. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you next week.